It was cold in hell. I should have let film stay and let y'all see that that one that's gonna happen to that white woman for letting that damn baby in that road. Well, hello. My name's Janet Yellen, and you're listening to the Life in Paradise podcast with Brendan Harper. I sure hope you guys appreciate the recent increases in my production value of this podcast. Now, since I'm getting paid, I can actually spend more time into producing it and making it more enjoyable for the user experience. I'm just kidding. I'm still not getting paid. But you know what? I'm going to do it how I want to do it, and hopefully y'all like it. Today is Sunday, October 2nd, 2022. It is nice outside which has been a recent change for me coming on here and first complaining about how hot it was and then complaining about the rain. And now we got awesome springtime-like weather here in South Texas. Couldn't be happier. I'm just a regular dude with a regular job and lots and lots of opinions. So I come here about once every week or two to get them off my chest. Some you'll agree with and others you won't. And guess what? I don't give a beep. No, I'm just kidding. I think we should all learn to disagree without being so disagreeable. It's fun to make fun of things and make fun of ideas and and have varying opinions, and it's fun to joke about them. But we should be able to discuss them without getting our panties in a wad. So I come here and I rant and I give you some of my opinions on the basic things that I think about and learn about throughout my life. Some politics, some cryptocurrency, some basic behavioral issues, some cultural topics, a little bit of everything. And if there's one thing you'll learn about me other than my podcast has nothing to do with the title... It's that I don't do pre-recorded intros. With that in mind, I'm going to keep my promise and keep the intros shorter than I have been. Sit back, relax, and let me have the keys to your crypto for about the next 30 to 45 minutes. baby bruh no no nothing on and his parents still ain't showed up yet <laughs> some of you guys may be wondering about these clips i've been dropping in here most of them are derived from my all-time favorite internet videos and so i've got this cool little gadget machine here that allows me to take clips from videos and plug them into the podcast i know that sounds simple but you would be surprised how difficult it is for guys like me to figure this out. So you're going to hear these random clips from time to time. If you care to know the source, you can ask me. If you don't care to know the source, I hope you find them as funny as I do. But that particular clip was taken from a 25 or 30 minute video of this guy who was driving down the road. I think it was Georgia. I don't know for sure. Somewhere that's called a Fitzgerald Highway, which I think means Fitzgerald Highway. And this gentleman was driving down the road, and he found 
he found a, a whole white baby in the middle of the road. So he proceeded to make a video, nonstop 30-minute video, recording this adventure of finding a whole white baby crawling across the road and finding its owner, rightful owner. So he's, you know, he posts a video that anybody knows this baby, we're out here on the side of the road and we found him. And so there was just some funny clips. I mean, I, I can't deny it. I can't deny that I find someone's commentary funny about a whole white baby that's been found crawling across a road. And if that makes me a racist or, or a bigot or whatever, well, then that's okay. I mean, you can call me whatever you want to. But I, I find people's opinions funny. And, and it's, it's just my sense of humor. It doesn't mean that you have to agree. This is the, the problem that we have today is that we feel like because, because someone doesn't agree with us or because someone doesn't find something funny, that just means it's not funny. And if that were true, then comedians wouldn't have jobs because some people find them funny and some people don't. Some people take offense to things and other people don't. And that's your choice to take offense to something. But when you hear people say things like, Brennan, this just not funny. This not funny. And my, my response to that is what? So since it's not funny, it's not okay and I, and I shouldn't do it. I shouldn't joke about the things that you think aren't funny. Is that how I should be? Well, no, but you're making fun of people, and it's not funny. Well, then don't laugh at it. Go go talk to someone else. Like I don't care that, that you don't think the same things are funny that I do. And I do like it if people think the same things that are funny that I do. Listen, I realize that my sense of humor is different than a lot of people's, and everyone's sense of humor is a little bit different. I don't find a lot of scripted humor funny, and I know other people do. But what I don't do is go to them and say, well, that's not funny. Because to them, it is funny. And so, what, if if something's funny, then it's okay to say it. If it's not funny, then you can't say it. I don't know how we got here. I really don't. I'm not sure how we got here. But I encourage people to, to do things that you think are funny and say things that you think are funny, regardless of what anyone else thinks. And if you want to be disrespectful, you can. But I think it's a delicate line that we have to balance between respect and humor. Because there's always someone... Who's the butt of the joke, right? The joke always plays on something or someone or some incident. And that's what creates humor. I didn't really have have the intention of going off on this little tangent. I was just going to play that clip and let it be. But then I decided to explain the clip. And then, I don't know, it just triggered, it just triggered me. I was, I was triggered to go off there for a second. Got a lot of stuff to talk about today. I missed last week. Well, I didn't miss. I did a podcast with my cousin Harry, who was in town for our Oktoberfest at the brewery. And so that will go up on his or our podcast feed called uh, Old Dog New Tricks Podcast. And so it's just a conversation between a 40-something-year-old and a 20-something-year-old who have similar outlooks on life, but very, very different life experiences. So it's a pretty cool perspective if you ask me. Harry's a smart guy, even though I wouldn't tell him that to his face because his head's already about to explode. But it's a fun listen. Basically, you're just listening to a phone conversation between me and a Gen Z kid. First thing I want to get to is something that I saw at the grocery store, and it just it, it set me off a little bit. And there's probably people out there that will that will not like to hear this or won't appreciate my, my sentiments, and that's fine. I'm okay with it. But I saw a sign. I was looking for some chorizo. And if you don't know what chorizo is, it's Mexican sausage. It's ground up pretty fine. You brown it in a pan in like a granulated form. And you mix it with eggs, you put it on a tortilla, and it's a chorizo taco. They're phenomenal. It's a, it's a breakfast staple around here in South Texas. And so I was looking for some chorizo at the store, 
and I found the chorizo, but there was a sign on, there's like four or five different brands. One of the brands had a sign that said Hispanic owned business. And I just thought, why are we doing this? Why are we, why are we putting signs on products that, that tell people the ethnicity or the skin color or the religion or the race of whoever makes a product? Because I feel like we should, we should be striving to buy products that we think are best and not buying products that give preference to people based on something that's out of their control, like their skin color. Imagine if, if I put out a sign that said, this beer company is owned by a straight white male who's not in a wheelchair. He's not crippled, and it lists all the things that I'm not. That seems to be like against the whole idea of equality. Equality, you know, if we're supposed to be colorblind, then it should make no difference to anyone the ethnicity of the business owner. And it just feels to me like what's happening is that they're just, they've gone overboard with this equality thing. So instead of just saying, hey, here's some sausage, hope you like it, they feel the need to say, well, this one is Hispanic owned and this one women owned. And pretty soon, all the products in the grocery store are going to be labeled with a kind of owner or the skin color of the owner. And so then what are we going to start doing? Well, then people are only going to buy white people products or Mexican people products or black people products. It it really, really blows my mind that people can't understand how this can backfire. That's what really gets me. And the more I go through life, the more I really figure out that people tend to not look into the future. People tend to just look at the past and react to it today so that we can we can make up for the the past if it were bad, if it was something that we don't want to talk about. It's just odd to me that people can't see how this thing's about to backfire. And I really do think it will. Don't know what it's going to look like, but it will backfire. We will go back to segregation of some sort. Uh, people will go back to declarations, you know, declaring what their business is, and, and then it'll all fall apart and start all over again. But the reason that we're dealing with it this time is not because we're, we're battling true racism or sexism or whatever you want to call phobe, whatever kind of phobe. That's not what's happening this time. This time you have a group of people who have taken it upon themselves to create a level playing field and create justice for people of color. Well, that's great and all. But you cannot take from some and give to others. Well, let me say that again. It's not Joe Biden. You cannot give to others without taking from some. And if we're promoting people, if we're putting them at the top of the list, or if that's our intention, based on their skin color, well, then that's that's discrimination. That's discrimination against the people who have the alternate skin color or, or different color hair or, or different colored eyes. And eventually those people will recognize that they don't have the same competitive advantage as this minority, and they'll get mad, and they'll be bitter, and they'll start suing people, and they'll start advertising for white people. I'm not just, like, making this up. This, this is what will happen unless this stops. Because what? how else will people react to it? Think about that. the competitors, chorizo. Let's just say there's a white boy, John Smith, and he makes chorizo, too. But he goes to the store, and he sees his sales are slipping. He looks around and he thinks, man, every person shopping in this grocery store is Hispanic or of Mexican descent. And they've got signs in front of this guy's products that say, oh, this company's owned by Mexicans. And so naturally, they're going to want to support their people, which is fine. But if we're going to allow them to do it, 
then we're going to have to allow the white boy to put his sign out in front of his chorizo. But we won't. We won't do that. So the white chorizo maker is going to get mad, and he'll, he'll find something. He'll either sue somebody, or maybe we'll run him out of the chorizo business altogether, which sucks. Imagine being that guy. Imagine being the guy that couldn't compete because the markets where the customers were predominantly Hispanic, they supported them. Not only that, but in the markets where supporters felt the need to support a Hispanic business over white business, regardless of their own skin color, he could get hammered in that arena too. And people don't think about this. And I think it's because most people have never been in the position of having to fiercely compete for your company to stay alive. That's Unless you've been a small business owner, you don't know what that's like. And the types of people who think it's a good idea to put these signs on foods, they're not small business owners. They've never been at risk for their, their life savings. They've never taken everything they had and put it into a business. If they had, they would understand that, hey, that's not cool. We shouldn't, we shouldn't do things to promote someone, especially if they don't have an unfair advantage. I mean, it, it, if I were a Hispanic chorizo maker, I would be furious. I would say, why are you... What do you think I can't compete without this help, without this added help of, oh, support a brown person. They're not as capable of making good chorizo as the white people. So you take that combined with the grocery store who wants social credit for saying, look at us. We support brown people too. And you've got this fuel on the fire. I'm telling you, this is not going to end well. This is just the beginning. I don't want to put any kind of time frame on this. But just think about it when you have these conversations with people, how ridiculous this is. We shouldn't be giving advantage to anyone based on their skin color. Period. Not a joke. You got some big testicles to pull this off, bro. You know what I kind of feel like is a scam? This whole, like, look at me. I'm allergic to everything, even gluten. I, I just think the whole gluten-free thing gives the ability for people who like attention and, and like to be the center of pity and sorrow. And, hey, there are people out there. Unfortunately, there are people out there who like that. And you may not be one of those people. Maybe you are. If you are, you might be a little offended. Or maybe you are and you don't classify yourself as one of those people. But we have to look around. We have to say there are some people out there who like to be the center of attention. And there are also people out there who like to be the focus of pity. And because there are those people, they will do things like say, I'm gluten intolerant, or I have a celiac allergy to gluten and wheat. And they'll use it so they can satisfy their needs or their, their feelings to, to be the center of attention. I say all that to say this. Somebody came into the brewery last week and they asked the person behind the bar who takes the orders for food, does anything on your menu have gluten? And they, they had to stop what they're doing, come back to the office, find me, and ask me, hey, does anything on our menu have gluten? And you know what I said? I said, I'm not going to play that game. I'm not going to tell you what food you have to stay away from because you say you're allergic. No. And that's why I thought, these people don't even know. They don't even know what they're allergic to. If you were truly allergic to something, you would know what it's in. You would know everything that it goes into. 
I have a friend who's highly allergic to pineapple, and he asks before anyone serves anything at any restaurant, is there any pineapple in this? I mean, obviously, if he orders soup, you know, he's not going to say is there pineapple. But there, if there's anything remotely sweet, he'll say, does this have pineapple? Because he knows that if he eats pineapple, he's going to be in bad shape. But these people and this gluten, you know, I understand that there's people out there who are celiacs or whatever. They can't process gluten. But if that's the case, you know exactly what gluten's in. So I told the bartender, I said, hey, don't, don't, don't play that game. Just tell them, say, we don't know. We don't, we don't have a list of everything that gluten is in. Because what would happen? We would say, oh, it's in this and this and that. And then they would order something that's not on that list. And they would get sick and they would come back and sue us. And so I told him, I said, look, just go tell him, like, hey, we don't know. You have to ask us about anything specifically, and we'll look it up and tell you. Because I think that the, the burden of research or burden of discovery should be on them, not us. You don't walk up to someone and say, tell me what on your menu has gluten. No, no, no. You silly, silly fool. You should not be at a barbecue place. There's no spot at a barbecue place. For people like that. You know what I mean? And this is why they say things like, I'm intolerant. Because they don't technically, they're not really sure if they're allergic. So, yeah, that's my theory. There, surely there are people out there who are intolerant or are allergic to it. But I think most of them just like the attention. They like to be special. They like to create a, a little bit of a, oh gosh, a drama scene to help make sure they don't get sick. And... It's hard for me to understand this because I am not the kind of person. I don't want any attention. I don't want anyone waiting on me. I don't even like people singing happy birthday to me or telling me happy birthday. I just, I don't like that. So I'm the opposite of that person. Now, maybe they say that I'm the weird one. Who knows? Like I, That's perfectly fine. It makes the world go round. But one thing I don't do is want anyone to make any exceptions for me. And it blows my mind that people expect exceptions to be made on their behalf that that is a strange characteristic that in my opinion it's it goes against kind of the the american way of independence and freedom and it reminds me of like a a spoiled rotten like movie star who just thinks that everyone should go their way to give them things and you know make sure there's only green m&ms in my m&m bowl and it's, I don't I don't admire those characteristics in humans. In fact, I I despise them. If we're all if we're all being honest, and you know what, those people may say, well, we despise people like you. We despise people who don't want to be the center of attention. We like to play pretend and we like acting, and that's why we're in Hollywood, so everyone can be see us and hear us and know us and talk about us. It's just two different kinds of people. They probably don't respect the hardworking man that goes to work every day and, and has got blisters on his hands and knows how to fix things, and I do. I do respect that kind of person, so that's okay. They can have their little Beverly Hills lifestyle, and I can have my Corpus Christi lifestyle, and we'll see who wins. So don't mess with me when it comes to words like that. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women created by the goal, you know the, you know the thing. Speaking of stupid people, you know, I don't like to call people stupid. Well, I, I kind of do like it a little bit, but I like to make sure that they're really stupid or that I have proof, evidence to back it up, 
my theory that people are stupid. And I'm talking right now about Janet Yellen, who is the Secretary of Treasury. She was the former president of the Federal Reserve Board. And you might be thinking, well, man, she's the president of the Federal Reserve Board. She can't be that stupid. No, no, actually she can. Well, I've come to a conclusion. One of two things. Either she is dumb, like she doesn't understand how economics works, or that she lies to us. Those are the only two things that we can say about her. In a second, I'm going to talk about this thing called the dollar milkshake theory and exporting inflation. It's going to probably get pretty boring for some people, but I'm going to talk about it. But first, I want to play some clips from Janet Yellen. And, you know, everyone was all excited. She was the first woman secretary of Treasury. And, oh, my gosh, we got a woman. I think she might even be lesbian. I don't know. And, frankly, I don't care. If we elect a woman lesbian, that's fine. We don't have to keep talking about it. We don't have to make a big deal. We don't have to pretend like it makes them a better person. We just need to pick someone that can do the job and let them do their freaking job. So we've got this old lady named Janet Yellen. And I really think that she, I don't know, I have no idea how she got into her position. She's probably a great academic scholar, probably really good at taking tests, probably understands a bunch of theory, but has no real-world experience. And I don't understand how an idiot like me, former construction worker turned barbecue cook, can see what's about to happen when these people who are appointed by the president miss the mark. So that's what I'm saying. Either they're stupid or they're lying because I don't think it's just a simple mistake. So if it's a simple mistake, then why are we putting these people in power? So in 2020, Janet Yellen comes out and goes, there won't be any real inflation. The U.S. can handle the money printing and the stimulus checks without a problem. There's only a relatively small risk of inflation. Then she comes out and says, oh, well, there actually might be some inflation, but it'll be transitory. And then she comes back out again and says, there's going to be inflation, but mainly it's because of the bottlenecks and the issues in the Ukraine. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I actually got clips this time. Is there a risk of inflation? Um, I, I think there's a small risk and I think it's manageable. So that was from mid-2021. Small risk of inflation, and I think it's manageable. When you have all of these hobby economists and all of these people that study the economy for fun screaming, we're going to get inflation, we're going to have inflation, there's going to be inflation. And fast forward like six months later, and then you get this. But I expect all of this to be transitory, and I think the economy is going to get back on track. I don't anticipate that inflation is going to be a problem. <laughs> A problem for who, Janet? A problem for you, people like you? Nope, you're immune to inflation. You see, because you get things for free and you have such a high salary that inflation doesn't matter. Such a small percentage of your income goes to disposable goods. Inflation doesn't matter. So yeah, of course it's not going to be a problem to people like you, Janet. But it will be a big problem to single moms. And fast forward to, I think, a few months ago, here she is saying she was wrong, blaming it on the Ukraine. I think I was wrong then about um, the path that inflation um, would take. There have been unanticipated 
and large shocks to the economy that have boosted uh, energy and food prices and um, supply bottlenecks that have affected our economy badly that I didn't, at the time didn't fully understand. But we recognize that now. First of all, I hate to say it. And you know what? I used to think I used to think about these people, man. I don't know. They're way smarter than me. They study this stuff. They get paid to know this stuff. I trust them. And I don't anymore. I, I trust my own theories and my own thoughts more than these people. And that's why I'm such a big proponent of people doing their own research and gathering their own thoughts. Because the more I go through this, the more I realize these people don't know what they're talking about. And if they do, they straight up lie. And I'll just say it, like straight up. The the situation in Ukraine would have a, nothing. It wouldn't even be a blip on the radar if we hadn't printed, the whole world hadn't printed all this money. And that just kind of threw a little bit of fuel on the fire. But you know who likes it? People like it that have to answer. And they have to say, like, what's the reason that you missed this? How did you miss the mark so bad on this, Janet Yellen? And she can say, well, there was the Ukraine and nobody saw that coming, which is a complete lie because we saw Putin and all his troops on the border and everyone's saying they're going to invade, 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 they're going to invade. And Biden goes, I don't know if they're going to invade. Of course he wants this to happen. You see, Biden's got a bank account in Ukraine bigger than every one of these people who are listening to this podcast right now put together. He's just they just signed another deal to send 12 billion more dollars over there. For what? For nothing. For nothing. I know at the very beginning everybody was so insistent that we had to stand with Ukraine, but pretty soon y'all are going to wish we just give Putin Ukraine. You're just going to wish that because that the turmoil in the in Western Europe is about to see what you ain't never seen nothing like it before. So, all that to say this. I've been studying about this theory called the dollar, the U.S. dollar milkshake theory. And it's it's kind of complex. I still don't know if I get it 100%, but I'm going to break it down as simply as I, as I can, okay? So, the dollar milkshake theory. For about the last 40 years or so, all the countries around the world have realized that they can just create their own money. And they can just fund banks and fund government programs by just pushing, you know, you know, the money printer button and creating funds to pay these people to do these things. And I think the U.S. kind of started it when they went away from gold in 1973, I think, 71 or 73. And over time, all these other little countries said, hey, man, that works for the U.S. They can just they have a debt based economy. Maybe, maybe we can do the same thing. And it's very tricky because they're always trying to balance inflation and unemployment, right? They they do things that make the economy grow a little bit, and they do things that make the economy shrink a little bit. And they grow it a little bit, and they shrink a little bit, hoping they could find a balance while giving people the opportunity to grow. The downside is that every now and then, the economy has to shrink a little bit. But if you're not careful, it can get away from you. The growth and the shrinkage cycles can get bigger and bigger and bigger, and eventually, you have no control over it. So here's the starting point. Countries have learned how to manipulate their money and create money. Now, you got to remember that the U.S. dollar is the most powerful currency in the world. And you hear the term reserve currency status or global reserve currency. The dollar is the strongest currency. And what that means is that all these countries 
when they do big transactions and they buy things and they sell things and they do lending and borrowing, it's all in dollars. And so just just take an example. Let's just say Sri Lanka wants to sell something to Malaysia. Well, they're going to do the transaction in dollars. So they're not going to operate in their local currency. They're going to switch to dollars, do the transaction, and then they either switch back or not. Also, big companies that do business, that when they take loans, they know that the dollar is more stable. It's not as, it's not as um, volatile as their own currency. And so they'll go take out a loan in dollars. Well, then they, they convert those dollars into their local currency. Let's just say Mexico. Let's just use that because everyone knows the peso. So let's just say that there's a big company in Mexico who wants to borrow a million dollars to grow their factory. And so they go to the bank and they borrow a million U.S. dollars. They convert it to pesos. They do all their improvements. They hire other people. They get all their equipment up and running. And now they owe a million dollars back to the government or the bank or whoever loaned them the money. Okay? But remember, they don't sell their products in dollars. They sell them in pesos. Okay? So just remember that. Leave it there. You got the company. They borrow dollars. They got to pay back dollars. They do business in pesos. Now let's talk about COVID. During the COVID crash, everyone flipped out and they thought, hey, we've got to create all this money so that, uh, so that nobody goes broke and people can stay home and, and we have to just... We have to do something. And so they printed a bunch of money. They gave it to everyone. Now, we've talked about this a lot. Remember what happens when you increase the money supply within a country without changing the demand? Well, the money supply goes up. So you have more dollars chasing the same amount of goods and services. So that pushes prices up, right? That's called inflation. So you see the price of things starting to, to become more expensive in your country. And so that means that the peso is losing value, right? One peso now buys you less than what it bought you before COVID. And these guys who have treasuries or stockpiles of money for their business operations or whatever they see that happening they think oh no the peso is losing its value i need to do something with it so they go convert it to the u.s dollars and you know some people will say yeah the u.s dollars losing its value too sure it is but not nearly at the rate as all these other countries because okay so we're going to pause right here also and I want to explain to you why the inflation isn't nearly as bad in the U.S. as it is all these other countries, okay? The U.S. sends their money everywhere. So we buy things, we transact, we sell bonds. So people walk away with our dollars. So think about it as they come to our country, we do business with them, and they leave with dollars. So because of that, we have the, the advantage of exporting our inflation. So if we were just to keep all the money right here within the borders of our own country, we would have more inflation. But since people will take the dollars and they go to Japan and they spend the dollars there, we don't see that. We don't have that. Remember, inflation is like this, the same goods and services with an increased amount of money. So when you take the increased amount of money out of that arena, they go somewhere else to spend it, we're not faced with that issue. That's why our inflation is lower than everyone else's right now. So because of that, the U.S. dollar has remained strong. And when people need U.S. dollars, the, the demand goes up. The value of them goes up. So let's just say that the peso guy, he sees that his tortillas now cost him 1.1 pesos and then 1.2 pesos and 1.3 pesos. And he also sees that the dollar 
isn't devaluing like the peso is. So he thinks to himself, if I can just take my pesos and convert them to dollars, I'll now hold dollars. And when I need to buy tortillas, I just convert my dollars to pesos and buy the tortillas. Well, then what happens is he's creating a demand for dollars, right? You have to think about dollars just like it was a commodity. It's just there's a dollar floating around and somebody wants that dollar. And so one guy says, I'm willing to give 1.1 pesos for that dollar. The next guy says, I'll give 1.2. I want that dollar so bad, I'm willing to give 1.2 pesos. And the next guy says, you know what? I'm going to give 1.3 because I think this thing's going to get worse. So that causes the dollar to increase in value. This is why you've probably heard the term, the dollar skyrocketing. It's, it's crushing other currencies right now. Okay, so here we are. We now understand that the dollar is worth more than what it was in terms of other currency because people want to get out of their currency because inflation is getting so bad. They want to put their money somewhere that doesn't lose value, so they go to the dollar, and because they're willing to, to, to give up a portion of their pesos in exchange for the dollar compared to where it was a few years ago, it pushes up the price of the dollar. So now there's this huge demand for dollars. So let's go back to the company who borrowed a million U.S. dollars for their factory improvements. But now they have to pay back a million U.S. dollars. And remember, the price of the peso used to be, let's just say for easy math, it was one peso for one dollar. For all the examples, let's just assume that. But now it's 1.2 pesos and 1.3 and 1.4 pesos to the dollar. But remember, the product that they're selling it doesn't change. It hasn't changed as much as the difference between the price of peso to the price of the dollar. So let's just say that now, let's just say that the price of the dollar doubled in terms of pesos. So you used to be able to get one dollar for one peso, but now it takes two pesos to get a dollar because everyone was bidding it up, remember? So now you have to sell virtually twice as many of your goods and services in order to pay back that loan. Now, this is kind of an extreme example. It's for easy math, but you can kind of see how it works. So when you have a dollar that's skyrocketing, it, it crushes the world economy. And there's a bunch of things that can happen. So one of them is that the company who borrowed the money in terms of dollars now says, well, I can't pay you, man. I mean, I don't know what to tell you, but I can't pay you. So that's called default. That's when these these companies and, and ultimately countries default on their debt because it's not only companies that borrow money it's also countries when you hear about all this you know funding secured and aid secured that's not just free money that the u.s gives out most of the time sometimes it is most of the time it's a loan so we give them loans in terms of dollars but say you got to pay us back in dollars and it's like from our government to their government or technically it's our big banks to their government but what ends up happening is they end up defaulting on their debt. They can't pay back the money they borrowed. It also makes it impossible for foreign or, or U.S. companies that do business overseas, and they, they trans, that transact in the, in the euro, but their company's based in the U.S. they got to convert it back to dollars. Well, now they get hammered, just like the guy with a factory in Mexico. So the dollar milkshake theory is that eventually the U.S. dollar sucks up all the money from all over the world and it gets so strong the dollar gets so strong so many people want dollars and so many people want to get out of their home currency they want to go to dollars that it ends up just breaking the whole entire system 
And this theory came about about three years ago. It was before COVID. And this guy called it, and it's, in my opinion, it is unfolding before our eyes. If you haven't heard, the dollar is stronger than it's ever been. And if you look at a chart, the dollar is pointed up and to the right, and every other world currency is pointing down to the right. That means they're diverging. They're growing farther and farther apart. It's it's kind of a complicated thing. I, I still I don't, I don't know if I have it 100% right, but I would encourage you to go do some research. If you're interested in learning how this thing works, go do some research, the dollar milkshake theory. If you hadn't heard, last week, the United Kingdom almost went into default. They almost, their, their pension funds, right? So they... They have a big retirement system that's like it's like our social security system. And what they've done, because interest rates were so low for so long, right? So let's just say that they got they have a million dollars. Obviously these numbers aren't right, but let's just say they have a let's just say they have a hundred dollars for easy math. And they know they gotta pay out six dollars a month. So that money goes to pay all the people who are on that pension. They they know they need six dollars a month no matter what. But they don't want to put it in a risky environment. They don't want a risk of, of losing it because then they can't pay for it. So interest rates have been really low. So remember, the less risky the investment, the lower the return is going to be. And so what they did was they went and they borrowed against that pension. They said, look, we've got $100 right here, cash, and, and we're invested at 3%. It's not going anywhere. It's a low-risk environment. We want to borrow against that. We want to take out another $100 and put it in a 3% yielding investment as well. Worst case scenario, you guys come take the $100 back. The bank says, okay. Whoever loans the money, the federal government says, okay, we'll do it. Well, remember, interest rates are going up right now. They're going through the roof. So the money that they take and they invest, they have to pay interest on it, right? No one loans free money. So they go to whoever and they say, look, we, we're going to borrow that money. We'll give you 1%. And they take it, and they loan it out, and they get 3%. Well, the, that 1% is tied to the market interest rate. And so as interest rates go up, now the people who run the pension owe more to the people who loaned them money than what their money is making them. This is called margin, margin debt. And so what they have to decide is, do we sell off the pension and cover our debt and not pay the people that we owe the pension to? What's the solution here? When that happens, it's called a margin call because the people who loaned you money, they want to get their money back no matter what. They're not worried about the pensioners. And so interest rates have started going up and it put their whole pension system in a bind. They were hours away from default last week, hours away from defaulting on their debt. And so what did they do? They turned back on the money printer. They did the opposite of what you're supposed to do. Because turning on the money printer or creating money has been what's caused all these issues, right? It caused inflation, which required them to raise the interest rates to slow down the economy to do away with inflation. But when you create money, you cause more inflation. What does that cause? It causes you to have to raise the interest rate more. What does that cause? It causes you to have to pay more interest on the money you borrowed. What does that cause? That causes you to not be able to pay it, and you go broke. In the U.K., they also limited the price of energy, which is going to be a huge problem, and they also created a tax stimulus plan. So they've already pivoted. What, what that means is that the Federal Reserve Bank's 
normally in one of two states. They're either stimulating the economy or they're contracting the economy. And right now, the whole world, everyone's trying to contract their economy. But you got the UK who says, if we don't, if we don't stimulate, this whole thing's going to explode. It's going to blow up in our face. We're going to be broke. And I'm telling you guys, this is going to happen. I don't know when. I can't give a time frame. I would say three months to three years, you're going to see some dramatic shifts in countries, and you're going to see unrest and the way these things do business and how they borrow money and how much it affects us, I don't know yet. I, I can't even begin to speculate. Hopefully not much. We're the strongest economy in the world. We're the strongest country in the world. We're the most powerful. So we will feel it less than anyone. Does that mean that we won't feel it? No, we're, we're going to feel this. Remember, the only, thing things, the only time things go wrong is when people can't pay their debt. Other than that, everyone's fine. And when someone can't pay their debt, it typically turns into a snowball. Because think about it from a rental home perspective, right? Let's just say that you go out and you got, you got $10,000 and you want to go buy a rental property. And so you go out and you buy a $100,000 rental property. So you pay the $10,000, but you also got to pay, let's just say it's $900 a month. $900 a month you owe for the house that you bought. You're going to go rent it out for $1,200, okay? So you're relying on that $1,200 to come in every month so you can pay the $900 to the bank, all right? Then all of a sudden you have a tenant decides they're going to quit paying rent. So now let's just say that you don't have enough money to make the house note on that rental property. What's going to end up happening? Well, whoever is relying on, all, let's just say that happens amongst 100 houses, okay? You have 100 people who all agree that we're not going to pay rent anymore, and so they stop paying rent. Well, whoever loaned the money to those people is now not getting paid. Now, it's highly likely that those people needed that money to pay for money that they borrowed. You see, it's just a domino effect. It just, we, we're so rich with debt. When one domino starts to fall, there's no stopping it. It just keeps working. It just hits the next one and the next one and the next one. If I had to make a prediction, which I don't like, I don't like doing this because it sounds doom and gloom, but also it's foolish to ignore reality. And I could be like Janet Yellen and say, we're not going to have a problem. Everything will be fine. But that's not what I think. I think we're about to see something that's going to make the 2008 housing crash look pretty small. I think people are going to lose their jobs. People are going to lose homes. People are going to lose investments. It's going to be bad. Now, hopefully everyone listening to this is in a position where they can just hunker down, man. All you got to do is get through this because there's always light at the end of the tunnel. We're America. We always recover. We always will. We're not going to end up like Baghdad. We're going to be fine. But you have to be willing to just clinch on everything and hang on and just go through the storm because there's no escaping it this time. And if you have enough cash to saved up to where you can invest when this thing hits rock bottom, that's how wealth gets made. That's how people get rich is by by buying things whenever they're cheap because no one else can afford to buy them. It sucks. It sucks to see like really good deals, but no one has any money to buy them. But if you can put yourself in a position to take advantage of the situation, you come out smelling like a rose. So a lot of people look at this as a, a great buying opportunity, right? It's going to be rough for a few years, but there will be a chance to, to get some pretty sweet deals. And personally, my opinion is that 
eventually, well, I think it's going to play out kind of like this. I think that you're going to start seeing countries that are riddled with debt, their currency is going to start collapsing. They're going to default on their loan payments. It's, it's going to be a, a you-know-what show. And so they're going to be faced with changing their whole currency system and going to the dollar, in which case, I, I don't know. I haven't thought that far ahead. I don't know what it would look like if every country tried to use the dollar. But I think it's more likely because people have been complaining for the last X number of years about having to use the dollar because of the way the Federal Reserve manipulates the dollar. And so they're fed up with it. They're fed up with the idea that we can control the currency and they're at our mercy. So I don't think that people will turn to the dollar. I think people will flee towards some type of cryptocurrency. Uh, there's a big part of me that thinks it's Bitcoin, but I don't know. It's Bitcoin will never be the thing that we buy things with. It will be the, if it makes it through this, which I think it will, it will be the thing that we store our money in, like gold, silver, something like that. And then there will be some other type of, of crypto or technology or network that will that will manage the the day-to-day simple transactions because Bitcoin's not good for that. It's too big. It's too slow. It's too clunky. It'd be like, it's like carrying around gold to buy things with gold. You just don't, don't do it. It's just not handy enough. And so the milkshake theory is everything I just explained. And it's just, it's the idea that if you have a, a big cup or a bowl and you have all these countries injecting money into it or sticking their syringes and just pumping their money into this big pool, which is basically what the, the global borrowing and lending platform is, just a pool of money floating around. And then as everyone's injecting, all of a sudden the U.S. sticks are straw in there and they start sucking. They start sucking up all that money that's been printed is now going back to the U.S. dollar. And so a lot of people think, you know, they hear the word strong dollar. Oh, that's a good thing. The dollar is strong. It's a good thing for you if you like want to travel, if you want to buy a house overseas, if you want to go spend your money somewhere else then yeah, it's good for you. But it's not good for anything that you buy from overseas or if you want to export things, etc. Hopefully you get the idea. All it boils down to is that these people like Janet Yellen are could very, very well be too stupid to be in charge of what they're doing. And there's a big part of me that thinks they are. Do I think I'm qualified? No, not even in the slightest. I would have no idea. But I think I might be more qualified than Janet Yellen. I don't know. I would love to sit down and like quiz her or have her quiz me and see how much she really knows. Because the stuff this person says, I mean, it's just ridiculous. It really is. It's ridiculous. And that's it. That's all I'm going to say about that. Now you know what the dollar milkshake theory is. Go research it. Watch some videos on your own. There's some short three to six minute videos out there. And you'll see this guy, everything this guy said three years ago is is actually happening right now, right now. This liberal will be all about socializing, uh, um, will be about basically taking over and the government running all of your companies. Well, we can just, we can only hope that if things go wrong, <laughs> Maxine Waters will step in and take over our companies and show us how it's done, anti-Maxine. Speaking of crooked Russians, one thing I've been thinking about was the term oligarchy. And you hear this term, you know, about these rich Russian guys. Russian oligarchies! And I'm thinking, I thought to myself, what does that, what does that mean? What do they do? Why are they called oligarchies? 
And so I started doing some research, and it all kind of clicked. Okay, so these are the the super wealthy guys that are involved in business and politics. And whenever communism fell, a lot of the businesses that the government owned and ran were sold off to people. They were sold to individuals who had money at the time, or they were friends of politicians, and so they inherited these businesses for free. Well, they took them, they borrowed money, they grew them, and they turned them into super big, wealthy conglomerates. And the way they do things in Russia is a little bit different. A little bit different than the way we do things here. Actually, not not too different, but the way they go about it. Let me let me explain here to you. So, in Russia, it's kind of common or it's known that everything's corrupt. That everything you do is a kickback and everything you do, you got to pay someone to the table for this guy. It's not a secret. Take, for instance, if you were to go open a business in a new part of town and you didn't know anyone there. Well, some guy would probably show up and say, if you want to do business here, you have to pay me. This is my part of the town. And then you decide whether or not you're going to pay him. Most people do because they keep it affordable enough to where people just pay them. They go in about their business. If, you know, if you have a problems and someone's messing with you, if, if the guy likes you, then you go tell him like, hey, Igor over there is jacking with me. Go get him. And so sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, whatever. But it's no secret that things happen under the table. In the U.S., things happen under the table, but no one really talks about it. So that's why we don't have the term oligarchy. We, because oligarchs are the guys who are the top bosses of corruption. And so since that's how they do things in Russia, there's corruption probably amongst grocery store baggers, right? There's a level of corruption amongst them all the way to the top. Well, the top guys are called oligarchs. And so since we don't have this public corruption, we don't have anything to call these guys. But I guarantee you they're there. There are guys at the top that are very, very interconnected between business and politics. And while they have maybe not been given businesses on silver platters, they've still found ways to manage to grow their businesses into giants. And it's been through the help of the people who are in Washington, D.C. So keep in mind that there are American oligarchs there's just no name for them. Big business donors, they like to stay under the radar. They don't like people knowing how much money they give to, to politicians. And the really big guys, they give to both parties. They give to both sides so that no matter who wins, they... Man, guys, this is going to be a long one. I'm just tell you right now. I've still got, still got some few things to get to. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of Putin, I've got some pretty good audio from the great fearless leader of the United States last week responding to a few questions about Putin. I'm going to play the questions, and then I might talk for a second before I play old Mushy Mouth's response. In a weekend interview, Vladimir Putin laughed at the suggestion that you had called him a killer. Is that still your belief, sir, that he is a killer? And I'll continue the trend if you don't mind of asking a second question. Do you believe if he does agree to cooperate, then what kind of a challenge do you find yourself in? How would you ever trust him? And if Ronald Reagan said, trust but verify, what do you say to Vladimir Putin? Okay, so I know that was kind of a long, rambly question or, or set of questions. So remember, here, the questions were, do you think Putin's a killer? And how can we ever trust him? Okay, just remember that. Now, I can see how it could be confusing to old Krusty Joe. But instead of saying what he says, perhaps he could have said, I'm sorry, let's take it one question at a time. 
Let's do your first question. Then I may ask you to repeat your second question. There would be nothing wrong with that, okay? But no, no. We got we get uh we get a, a little gym, which you know I'm kind of thankful that uh he gives me something to talk about. So here you go. This is not edited. I didn't chop this up. There's been nothing added or taken away or deleted. This is legitimately his response to the question. Did you call him a killer? And if things reverse course, how can we trust him, Mr. President? How can we trust Putin? <laughs> to answer the first question, <laughs> I'm laughing too. They actually, I... Well, look, I mean, he has made clear that uh, uh, the answer is, I believe he has in the past essentially acknowledged that he was, uh, there are certain things that he would do or did do. But look, um, when I was asked that question on air, I answered it honestly. But it's not much of a I, – I, I don't think it matters a whole lot in terms of this next meeting we're about to have. His response was literally, literally, literally. That's really not important for the discussion that we're about to have, which is pretty silly. If you ask me, it's clear he didn't really understand the question or he couldn't process it fast enough to get an answer out. But I want to play his response again, and this time – don't focus on the words that he says. I want you to listen to how he says them and how he sounds like his mouth is kind of falling asleep. If he, if he's not, if he doesn't keep talking, it'll just talk and just, just talking like he's a little drunk and the words kind of run together when you're drunk and you've been drinking and you're real old and you're like 85 years old. And then I'm going to play a clip from him from two years ago. So listen again. Listen to the, his speech patterns and his word formulation and the, the way that his tongue just kind of wobbles around and flops inside of his mouth. Just listen to all that. Don't worry about what he's saying. Listen to how he's saying it. <laughs> to answer the first question, <laughs> I'm laughing too. They actually, I, well, look, I mean, he has made clear that, uh, uh, the answer is, I believe he has in the past essentially acknowledged that he was, uh, there are certain things that he would do or did do. But look, um, when I was asked that question on air, I answered it honestly. But it's not much of a, I, I, I don't think it matters a whole lot in terms of this next meeting we're about to have. I mean, between this guy and Kamala Harris? What is happening? And Janet Yellen, people, like, we've, we've, we've got to do something. We've got to do something. Because if we keep electing these people, we're going to keep having these results. Nothing will change, okay? Kamala's, her word salads are getting worse and worse. I don't know why. I'm not accusing her of being in mental decline. I'm accusing her of just not being able to put together a thought on the spot. I'm accusing Biden of mental decline, and I'm accusing Janet Yellen of being stupid. Here's a clip from Biden from two years ago. You listen to this clip, and you tell me he's going to make it another two years? I've told the story, and I'm going to tell it again. I uh, was a high school kid trying to get a job as a lifeguard in the east side of Wilmington in the projects, the largest uh, city swimming pool, because I was involved with 
as a kid trying to get involved in the civil rights movement. I was the only white employee in the East Side for a while, and I stopped off to pick up an application in what they call Rodney Square, the corporate center of America at the time. And I was getting out of the car to go into the courthouse to get my application. My dad dropped me off, and there were two men, well-dressed men, standing in the corner. And they kissed. We were stopped at the light. They kissed, and one walked to the Hercules building. It used to be the big company there. And the DuPont, other one to the DuPont building. He just turned and looked at my dad. And he said something simple and profound. He said, Joey, it's simple. They love each other. Simple. They love each other. Not a joke. Oh, oh, good. I'm, I'm glad he said it's not a joke, because I was actually going to start laughing. But then when he said it's not a joke, I don't understand what it is with him and not a joke, but I do find it quite funny that he feels the need to tell uh, not a joke when clearly there's nothing jokingly about two gay men kissing. But really what I wanted you to hear was the change and how even two years ago, he was a little bit off. He was a little bit there. I was I was saying it back then. I was saying his mind's slipping. I could tell. I could tell by the way he's talking. And I had somebody who would go unnamed who called me just a right-wing conspiracy theorist and that I just regurgitate what I hear and just say it. And then now, guess who's joking about Biden's mental decline? The same individual that used to tell me I didn't really know what I was talking about and I was going too hard on him. So my whole point is that he will decline more rapidly as time goes on. The, the declination doesn't slow down. It speeds up. It's exponential. So I'm telling you, I don't think there's any way he'll make it. I think that he's going to see so much decline in the next two years, something will cause him to be out. I don't know what it'll be. I don't know who's going to take over. Probably Hillary. I don't know. Maybe maybe Michelle Obama, who's, I think she's like 5'11". I didn't know that to the other day, but she's huge, huge woman. I don't know why I thought it was funny, but I did. Not a joke. Not a joke. And really, I feel sorry for the people who who really hated Trump, and they have to pretend like everything's fine with Biden. They have to pretend like nothing's wrong. I listened to some few, to some few, I saw on Joe Biden. I listened to some far left-leaning podcasts. I'm talking like leftist, Bernie bro type stuff, where they just like, they're all about Obama, and they all talk like with a lift, but they swear they're straight, and they love Jen Psaki, and they love Kareem St. Jean-Pierre, or whatever her name is. You know, there's about as left as you can get. And I listen to them because I want to hear what they're saying. It's interesting to me. And naturally, they don't talk about these types of word salad clips. They don't mention the fact that he walks off stage half the time and has no idea where he's going. None of that comes up. And I know that these guys are smart enough to see it, and they have to understand it. And I often wonder about, do they talk about it amongst themselves? I feel like they probably do. I would like to see those conversations. Their luxury homes and other ill-begotten gains of Putin's kleptocracy. Uh, yeah. Kleptocracy. And klep- the guys who are the kleptocracies. <laughs> it must be tough going from a prideful, vain person to have to laugh at yourself whenever you can't say kleptocracy. That's a sad day. Sad day in diapers, my friend. Sad day in diapers.
All right, next topic. Man, I am going long today. I may not finish. I may save some for next week. Or maybe I'll do a midweek one. I don't know. I want to talk about the new car dealership model. I think as times change, we're going to we're going to go away from the idea that you go to a dealership and you pick out a car on the lot or you order one because Tesla is showing that we don't really have to do that. And COVID kind of threw gas in the fire. Most people just went to a car dealership so that they could have a car that day. And I think as time goes on, we're becoming more okay with not having things at that exact time. We order things from Amazon. We hope to get them the next day. Sometimes it takes two days, but we're kind of becoming conditioned to waiting for things. And so with the way that the used car market is going too, that they'll be delivering those to our home. So I think that there will be all kinds of really cool virtual tours you'll be able to do, and you'll be able to look at them and with these really good 3D cameras and zoom around them. And then you can order one, and it can be made for you, and it just shows up at your house. Or you can buy a used one. And I think that either way, I don't know, there, there's going to have to be some sort of way that people who want to go touch it and feel it and see it can do it. And I think what that might look like is, is someone who owns a Ford truck. Okay, they go out and they buy a new truck. It's their truck. The dealership will say, hey, would you like to be in this pool of people who show cars? You, you know, you just bought this truck. If someone wants to buy this truck with this style and this package, can they come look at it? Obviously, you're going to have to pay this guy, right? So I think what will happen is one of two things. You either pay the guy for his time to show his truck to a potential buyer, or the guy will get a commission if you end up buying a truck. And, you know, after a year or two, your model expires and you're, you're no longer on the list because they want people to show the newest models. And maybe that will incentivize you to get the next truck. Or maybe they'll be able to apply the, the compensation in the form of credit on a new vehicle. All these things are being brought about. We have to think outside the box. We, we, we have to remove the constraints of all the things we've known in the past and say, why were those there? Why did we have a dealership? Well, we just had a dealership so you could walk away with a car that day. The alternative to that was people would go to a dealership and order their car. And either way, if they order their car, they have to wait for it now like they did back then. So if you can go online, find a used car that you like, they can ship it to you from Maine to Texas for less money than it takes per year to maintain a dealership and a salesperson and all the taxes that go with that, they're going to figure out that dealerships are completely unnecessary. And so you're going to have all this dealer real estate that's going to sit around and probably turn dilapidated. I, I think that commercial real estate is going to be in decline for a long time moving forward from now. Obviously, there will be certain things that don't go away. I mean, you still have to have manufacturing facilities. You still have to have people in offices to a certain extent. But I think a lot of that demand is about to be stripped away by this big economic purge. And it's already been primed through COVID. People kind of already know how to deal with it. So it's not going to be a new thing that we're going to have to overcome. And I think that one of the big things that this whole transformation is also going to bring is the ability for consumers to be compensated for their time. Because right now, the way that we're compensated for our time when it comes to to big tech or, or entertainment is just by use of the platform. So, for instance, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, we're compensated by what we get to use this app for free. And in turn, they get our data. They get us all, goodness, they get all of this information about us. And in exchange, we get to use the app for free. 
And I think over time, it will become more and more competitive for our time as consumers. And so not only will they have to let us use something for free, but I think we'll end up getting paid for our time. And I think that a commercial will come up on whatever device you have, whether you're wearing some kind of headset or it's projected on the wall or a hologram. And it'll say, you know, watch this commercial for a nickel or whatever the currency is at the time. And there will be people who tr who capitalize on this and try to make this a business. And there will be a system that comes up in place to stop that from happening. And it's just a cycle that always occurs. But we have to always ask ourselves, what's the next middleman to cut out? Because that's all technology is, is cutting out the middleman. Think about how much ability we have to sit and record high-quality audio in, in the comfort of our homes where, man, just 15 years ago, to have the equipment it would take to produce a podcast, you got to have some money, you got to have some skill, some knowledge, and not that everyone who does podcasts does have the knowledge, like me, I'm just an idiot with an iPhone, but how far that's come. Well, let's cut out all the studio time and all the these people who, technicians and engineers, It's it's become so simple that it's cut out the middleman. And I think that the the middleman in the advertising world is just the the people who buy the advertising space and it's people who sell the advertising space one day won't be necessary because we will have the ability to do transactions based on fractions of seconds and automatic and it won't take somebody to to figure out who owes who what it's all going to be pre-programmed this is all stuff that you'll see in black mirror if you've never watched black mirror i think it's on netflix it's highly worth a watch if you if you're interested in what the future could look like you should totally watch it because there's stuff that you'll see in there and you'll think oh wow that's that's coming you know it's here it's just not quite here yet highly recommend black mirror see i'm not racist i like black mirror i tell you if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or trump and you ain't black all right for my last and final which i know is redundant I know it's redundant, but I still like to say it because if something is last, it's also final. I know, I know. It's like saying first annual. I love to say it mainly because people like to say, you can't say first annual. You can't say that. You don't only the second annual or first inaugural. And I love it. I love it when people say that. So for my last topic, I'm going to talk about none other than Bitcoin and I know you might get sick of hearing me talk about crypto and Bitcoin, but that's okay. You need to hear it. If you if you get sick of hearing about it, you just let me know and I'll give you your money back. You don't have to pay for this episode. And I want to explain to people who may not get it how, how Bitcoin could be the next global reserve currency. And the reason I didn't follow this up after the dollar milkshake lecture was because I wanted to give you some time to digest and then maybe we could circle back to it and... I was kind of worn out on talking about it too. So talk about Bitcoin. All right. We know that it's volatile. We know the price moves around. We know we know that it's worth $20,000 some days and $30,000 next day. And we don't really know much, much else than that. I'm speaking. I think the general population doesn't have a, a solid understanding on it. And that's okay. That's what I'm here for. And rest assured, when it comes to the world of cryptocurrency, I am an idiot compared to other people out there. So I know my role. I just do my best to explain it. I may have some things wrong. I'm not a techie. Like, I do my best to turn on the computer. Okay, so cut me some slack here. But the way that I could see this thing working 
is, well, first let's just back up a little bit. When you think of Bitcoin, you hear $30,000 for one, you think, well, that's too expensive. It'll never work to serve as a global monetary system because people can't even afford to buy one. But you have to keep in mind that you can divide one all the way out to like eight decimal places. 0.00000001 can be the smallest denomination we currently have. And if enough of the people who contribute their computing power to operate the Bitcoin network agree that we can add five or six more decimal places, then we can do that too. So that's not really an issue. You don't have to you don't have to transact in in dollars. You can transact in pennies if you need to, right? The problem with pennies is that you can't go any smaller than a penny. The good thing about Bitcoin is that you can go all the way out to eight decimal places and more if you ever need them. So don't let that be a be the barrier. Another thing about it is that we're figuring out what happens when you can manipulate money. Back in the day, before people actually had government currency, I think it was in Africa. There was, I don't know, there's some people colonization going on there. And they needed a way to exchange goods and services because it doesn't make sense that if, if I grow carrots and you grow apples, I don't always need an apple and you don't always need a carrot. So bartering just doesn't work. So they had to come up with one one way to put a value on things so that they could carry around something on their person and be able to acquire goods and services they need. So one of the first things with these little glass pebbles that they used, and I think it was the British who brought them down there. They There was these specialized glass pebbles that you could only get in the UK. So they knew that when people were there, in, I think it was Africa, somewhere in Africa, let's just say it was in Tanzania. So if I was in Tanzania, I knew that the only glass pebbles that were around were the ones that can be gotten from the UK. I knew that people couldn't make their own glass pebbles because they didn't have the equipment, the technology, whatever it was, they weren't able to make them. And because of this, we knew that there was a finite amount of glass pebbles floating around. Because think about it, if anyone could make glass pebbles, then they could just make money. And that doesn't work. Well, people got smart and they started doing that. Or they would, they would go to the UK and they would buy their pebbles and they would bring them back and say, look... I got whatever the all the pebbles I need to buy, whatever I need to buy. Give me that Bentley. Give me that Rose. Give me all them diamonds. Here's my pebbles. And so they thought, okay, this isn't going to work. It needs to be something that can't really be replicated. And so fast forward, they you started using gold coins. And without going into the history of money, just know that you have to have a finite amount and you have to have something that can't be replicated. There's a few other things that you have to have too. Portability. I, don't know, I can't remember all of them off the top of my head. There's like five properties of money, of sound money, money that the best money you can think of. And the the one that I'm going to focus on right now is just the, the finite amount. There's only You can only have so many in existence. And the reason I'm focusing on that now is because of the, the talk about the dollar milkshake theory. Whenever we all agreed that it's not a good thing for governments to be able to just create more money. So with Bitcoin, we know that only 21 million bitcoins will ever be in existence they will ever be produced right now we're at about 19 million every 10 minutes a certain number gets produced that's too long and boring for this podcast so i'll talk about that another time but so we have a finite amount of something bitcoin 21 million now i think that the lessons that we will have learned when this whole 
dollar collapse, maybe dollar collapse, probably dollar collapse. I don't know how long, but whenever the dollar does collapse, we will think to ourselves, wow, we need something that we can't just just create more of. The downfall to that is that we can't we can't control when the economy gets stimulated. We can't control to cool it off because we have no control over the creation of money. But I don't think that will stop us. I think that we will still understand that it's important to have money that can't be tinkered with because we all saw what that did to us. Now, this is me 15 years from now. And it just makes sense that after we see all these countries' money fall to pieces, somebody's going to say, okay, time out. We need a money that, that fits you know, this and this and this and this and that. And right now, the only thing that fits all those is Bitcoin. Now, whether or not it can be hacked or goes down or whatever, which has never been hacked, has never gone down, but that does scare some people. So, so maybe that's the reason why it won't be the one. But in my opinion, it's the closest thing we have because it is, it's decentralized, meaning no one controls it, no one owns it, no one has the rights to it. It's completely just out there. And so the guy, one of the, the original founders, he designed it that way, and he's anonymous. No one, no one even knows who he is in real life. And that's one of the things that makes it so awesome is that someone saw this in 2009, 2010. They saw what happened when the housing market crashed in 2008. They saw what happened whenever money was created. And they thought to themselves, we need to design something that won't be a victim to this. And I feel like that that's what Bitcoin is. Now, something better may come along, we don't know. You never know if something better is going to come along, especially with emerging technology. But if it does, then maybe that will replace it. But I think wholeheartedly that the, if Bitcoin had to, it could service the entire world, even if there's only 21 million of them. Because remember, they're all divisible. It's divisible by as much as you want. And so there's no reason why it couldn't service the world. But there's lots of issues to overcome still. There's the volatility, right? No, Nobody wants to put their money into it if they got to pay their rent because it could go down overnight and they could lose their rent money. But the more money that goes into it, the less volatile it becomes. It's called liquidity. And maybe I'll do a lesson on liquidity the next podcast. But think about how easy it would be to do international transactions, right? We wouldn't have to worry about two pesos to a dollar or three pesos or four pesos or $2 to the peso or one euro to $2 or two dollars to a year none of that matters so we don't have to worry about it so that's another advantage so those two right there the idea that you have a finite amount and you cannot create more plus the idea that we don't have to deal with other currencies collapsing on top of that it's basically free to move around which means i can send bitcoin from one wallet to another wallet essentially from one person to another person for less than pennies on the dollar, almost for free, very, very low cost to move to move it around. So another thing that it can do is be portable. I don't have to carry anything with me. I don't have to carry sacks of gold. I don't have to have a checkbook. I don't have to have anything. It's just all, it could basically be on a thumb drive, or you can just memorize the 12-word phrase in your head and access it from anywhere. So all these things lend to what I believe might make Bitcoin the next big world store of value. I don't think it'll be a currency like we think of it. And once again, 
You know, we have to think outside the box. We have to we have to take the way that we've been doing money for 100 years and throw it away because we have the ability to start fresh. We don't have to operate under the constraints that we used to. And the constraints that we've been operating under for money have been the same. It's you go to the bank, you put your money in the bank. You can write a check. You write a check, and then one bank gives money to another bank. That really hasn't changed. We've been writing checks since, what, the 30s, 20s maybe? I don't know. We've been writing checks for a long time. You still see people at the grocery store taking out the checkbook and writing a check. This hasn't changed. Why does it take four days for a transaction to clear? If I ACH, wire money, three to five, sometimes seven business days? Are you freaking kidding me? Okay, well, I hope it's starting to sink in. I know I talk about Bitcoin a lot, but I really do feel strongly about it. Not just because I, I, I saw it in 2010 and fell in love with it. Not just because I own some, but because I think that it, it is the next step in the way that we do money. And it's exciting to me to be on the brink of watching it unfold. It's going to be a shame what has to happen for us to start using it or something like it. But it's coming. It's coming. He couldn't have done it without you. All right. I guess I'm going to have to call it a wrap, man. That's an hour and 18 minutes. I still got three or four more bullet points, but I'm not going to get to them because I'm tired of just sitting here in one spot with these stupid headphones on. So I'm going to go outside, play with Gypsy, kill some weeds, fold some clothes, do all the Sunday things. But I do appreciate you listening to the whole show of Life in Paradise podcast. I really and truly hope everyone has a great week this week. Go out there, work hard, help anyone who needs help. Don't be ashamed of anything you think. Be respectful to people, especially old people. And most of all, go buy some Bitcoin. You know how much I'm going to do with the deficit this year? 